The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv slash education. Passed in 1978, the long-standing legacy of California's Proposition 13 has often been characterized as a knockout blow to education from which we are still recovering in the 21st century. See changes in the manner in which funding for elementary and secondary education were calculated and distributed to local education agencies resulted in sweeping curtailments across the board. This included support for assistant principals, maintenance, physical education, and perhaps most concerning in a creative economy, support for arts education. Flash forward four decades, and much akin to a phoenix rising from the ashes of Proposition 13, we find overwhelming fiduciary support for arts education in the form of Proposition 28. Proposition 28, passed in November of 2022, provides for an influx of close to $1 billion statewide for contextually grounded arts education across PK-12. But is Proposition 28 panacea, Pandora's box, or somewhere between? My name is Morgan Appel, Assistant Dean for Education and Community Outreach at the Division of Extended Studies at UC San Diego and host of Creative Conversations on this very channel. To help us sort fact from fiction on this groundbreaking initiative and its potential impacts on pupils, practitioners, and parents alike, the Division of Extended Studies and Arts and Music Collab, an intersegmental group of arts educators and education specialists, are hosting a three-episode series to help stakeholders paint sculpt, compose, and choreograph the future. Today, I'm joined by two experts in taking the first steps in this journey. Pauline Crook serves as arts coordinator for the San Diego County Office of Education. She has been a music educator for more than 25 years and is a national board certified teacher in music. She leads Arts Empowers San Diego, a collective impact initiative supporting arts education for all students of the county. Pauline, welcome. Thank you. I am also excited to welcome to the panel Russell Sperling. Mr. Sperling serves as Director of Visual and Performing Arts for San Diego Unified School District. He is responsible for all components of arts education in California's second largest school district and has rather a long and distinguished career in the arts woven across the tapestry of San Diego County. Welcome, Russell. Great to be here. Thank you. So first and foremost... Tell us a little bit about the Arts and Music Collab and its relationship to Proposition 28. So we reached out to to you and to Dr. Ada Beda when we saw the potential for Prop 28 to pass. And we thought, gosh, what a great thing, but how are we going to build the supports? How are we going to make sure that people um, are aware of the opportunities? And how are school leaders and parents and all the, the folks that you just mentioned going to deal with these resources in a way that strategically provides a standards-based education for our students in California? And, and Pauline, tell us a little bit about how the county got involved in the initiative. Russ and I were meeting last summer and talking about so many things that this proposition passing would mean for students and the need to involve as many partners as possible to make it happen. And so that's how we got started. I, I think I think that we um, thought of UC San Diego yes. um, because of the leadership that um, the university provides in our region. And um, I had known uh, Dr. Beta for, for many years and just as a visionary, I wanted to reach out, and so we, that's when we 
started kind of thinking about what could be possible. And so then I think that's when we met. Yes, I, <laughs> I, I, I agree. And I can't believe it, it was just, well, uh, less, than, less than a year less than a ago year. now. Yeah. And funding for, for Proposition 28 is, is coming fast and fierce, as it were. And to, to many, it seems pretty straightforward. It is a grant. Schools will get money and the money will be distributed, but it's a little bit more opaque than that. And I'm so glad that you both are here to sort of clear up any opacity uh, that, that we find. So perhaps, Russ, if you could start off, what is Prop 28? And, and what was the reason? Why now? For, for so many years in the wake of Proposition 13, there has not been funding for arts education. So what is, at its heart, what is Prop 28? So it's an opportunity to provide dedicated funding for arts education. I think that for many years, um, those of us in arts education and in the broader education community felt that um, we just needed to get our fair share of the pie of the regular funding so we could um, we could have arts education funding. But but I think that Austin Butner, who um, was the superintendent of Los Angeles Unified School District for many years. Um, he began to realize that um, it's, it's really a scarcity issue. There's not enough money in the system to begin with, really, to provide all of the services that students need. And then, you know, the arts were always seen as maybe this extra thing. Well, we'll get mm-hmm. to it someday. Mm. And I think he just kind of said, you know, um, the people of California want this for their children. We're in a creative economy, as you mentioned. This is important to uh, the vibrancy of California that we have arts education in our schools. So we said, I'm going to create an initiative that takes uh, money right off the top of the general fund. So Prop 98 is our our guaranteed funding for uh, K through 14 education that's over there that hasn't been providing for arts education in a robust way. Um, Let's go to the other side. Let's, let's, Let's take some money off the top of that and give that directly to arts education. And so that's um, basically what Prop 28 does. Mm-hmm. And to address one other thing that you brought up is the word grant. So it's yes. not some people have a mistaken idea that it is a grant that districts need to apply for and then be given the funding if it's deemed that they are deserving of that funding, the way a lot of grant applications work in our state for education. And it's actually ongoing funding, as Russ mentioned. It's its own separate money. It's not coming out of any other education funds. It's coming out of the general budget and being added to education with the purpose to ensure that more students have access to arts education. So it's something in addition to what already exists right now. So those who might be worried that, you know, arts education maybe will supplant funding for uh, something like math or, or English language arts, nothing's being taken away. And this is funding that is perpetual Yes, it is ongoing forever unless the legislator makes some changes or if their Prop 98 is suspended due to financial challenges that our state is facing. Yeah, I understand actually the voters would have to vote uh, against it mm-hmm. again, which means someone would have to go out there and get a million signatures to put something back on the ballot. We think that's a little unlikely. So the initiative referendum and recall process and action. Were you surprised by the overwhelming support for Prop 28? <laughs> you know, um, I 
Yes, in, in a word. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I was surprised. Um, what surprised me is that, um, I don't know if you remember your ballot from uh, November, there are all these rather controversial uh, measures right around the number 28. Mm-hmm. And I thought that we might get some blowback. But people seem to know exactly what they were voting for because it got 64.4% of the vote, which is the highest passage rate for any educational initiative in the history of the state of California. And we do hear people all the time talking about, oh, we love arts education. It's so important. We understand the benefits. We've read the research. We know these things. But when it comes down to it, actually putting the actions behind those sentiments, we don't always see that happen 100% of the time. So while we believed that it could and would happen, which is why the conversation Mm -hmm. started about the collab, um, we really desperately wanted it to happen for students. And at the same time, we're a little anxious about, well, will it really happen? So it was one of those very pleasant surprises. And it's really a a case of putting voters' monies where their mouths are and really coming out in in favor of this initiative. But the way the initiative, the way the monies for the initiative are distributed are perhaps a little bit different than they have been in the past. If I'm to understand correctly, the monies go directly to schools? So the money will go directly to the school district, who is then told to allocate it in a certain way. So we have the funding formula, which is the same as Prop 98. So 70% of the funding is based on the number of students in a school site. And 30% of that dollar amount that's coming is based on the free and reduced price meals that mm-hmm. students receive. So they use that data to determine how much a school site is getting. And then at least 80 So the district will get the money or the LEA, Mm -hmm. and then they will give it out to each school site. Because as you can imagine, the Department of Education needing to send money directly to each school in the entire state would take longer. Exactly. (laughs) Labyrinth thing. Yes. So just for a point of clarification, Mm -hmm. an LEA is? A local education agency. And that is? A A school district. A school district. Mm -hmm. But it could be a charter school. Yes, if it's a, yes. So that, that's why we usually say LEA versus school district, because mm-hmm. it's not always a school district. And, and these monies are going to every publicly funded school. Yes. So the monies come in to the district mm-hmm. because they have the infrastructure to distribute them. But how are decisions made then at each school? Well, the decisions are supposed to be made by each school site principal, and they will determine how to spend the funding, but there's guidelines within that. So at least 80% of the dollar amount needs to be spent on people that will be instructing students in music, whether it's a certificated person or a classified person. And you just said music, so you meant um, arts and music. Did I? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. Excuse me to all of my other All five disciplines. All the rest of the disciplines. Let's not that. We mean you, too. I was in a conversation about a school site music teachers this morning, so that must have been where that slip Mm -hmm. came from. Excuse me. So, yes. So, for all of the arts, dance, media arts, music, visual arts, and theater, at least 80% of the funding will be spent on people teaching those arts disciplines who are employees of the school district. And then the district itself can keep up to 1% of the funding for support, administrative, infrastructure, administrative cost. Exactly. And then the other 19 to 20% or whatever that number is can be spent on materials, supplies, and arts education partnerships. So our teaching artists, um, programs that our museums and other arts organizations have within the county. So this... Russell is a significant degree of autonomy 
for schools in, in deciding what the best fit is for them. What, so what can monies, well, we heard a lot about what monies can be spent on. Are there things that monies can't be used for? Yeah, actually, uh, we can't be uh, spent on facilities. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really about um, the education piece. It's about that teacher uh, or that instructor in the classroom that's providing instruction. That's the emphasis. And that remaining 19% to making sure that they have the supplies and and the the other things that make arts education come alive in a school. So um, it is pretty open-ended, and and, and there is a lot of... uh, um, latitude that, mm-hmm. that schools have. Um, but there is also a definition of what arts education is in the bill. And we also have a tremendous uh, new state framework for arts education in, in California, which is a, tr- is a wonderful resource uh, for folks that maybe are, are newer to the arts education scene that need guidance. There's a ton of guidance that's available through the Department of Education, through the framework and our new standards. So we talk about practitioners. But can you use funding, for example, to support classified staff? What about teaching artists that you might want to have come in? How does that all work? Well, the classified staff can fall under the 80% if they are instructing students directly. So if you have someone that's doing other type of work that you Mm -hmm. may want to hire, that is fantastic and probably very needed. And this funding can't be used to to pay for people to do other types of work that might support arts education that's not directly with students. So I've given examples like um, in, in a vocal music class, a piano accompanist is a, a great resource so the teacher can concentrate on teaching the, the singing, but then you've got a pianist over here playing. And that would be an example of a classified position that would be supporting arts education. We also think of um, sometimes in a dance class, sometimes we'll have a, a choreographer come in um, who often we will we'll get someone from an arts organization organization, but if it, but that would not work for the 80% because mm-hmm. the 80% needs to be an employee. So something that we're doing in San Diego Unified, and I know this is happening in other districts as well, is we're creating some, um, some new classified job descriptions so that there are positions like choreographer, piano accompanist, um, I'm not coming up with mm-hmm. others right in the top. Yeah. <laughs> the technical but still, they're technical very theater. technically yeah. based versus yeah. somebody with a, a, a formal teaching credential, formal arts teaching credential. Mm -hmm. But then this begs the question, there's a large influx of funding coming in, and we're talking about supporting arts education through the onboarding of arts teachers, teachers who are either credentialed in the arts or have authorizations in the arts. How are we doing in terms of that pipeline? Well, that's one of the reasons we reached out to you is because uh, we could see that there was going to be this tremendous demand uh, for not only the credential teachers, which, you know, that's kind of where we start because of that 80 percent, but also this classified piece, too. Um, You know, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for folks within the system, but there's also tremendous um, so to just give you some numbers, because I think it helps to kind of paint a picture. And I know you like painting as, as, as a <laughs> metaphorically, yes. So um, to San Diego Unified School District, we're talking about around $15 million uh, that Prop 28 is going to afford us. So you take about 20% of that, that's $3 million. So yes, we're going to get some supplies, we're going to do some field trips, but there's, there's a tremendous opportunity 
for us to be bringing on teaching artists mm-hmm. under contract through different organizations. And so that is a concern that I've heard out there. I keep hearing you talk about um, credential teachers, but it, are there going to be opportunities for teaching artists? Yes. And the answer is a resounding yes. There's going to be probably more opportunities than we have teaching artists for. I, and we're already encountering that, and we haven't even gotten the money yet. So there is going to be opportunity for teaching artists. Now, this also begs the question that many school administrators, I'd, I'd imagine many school administrators are somewhat steeped in the arts and have a good idea of what is needed. But what about those who see the influx of funding coming in and really don't know what to do with it, don't know where to start? Well, if they're in a school district that has someone like Russ, who's their point person mm-hmm. for all things that have to do with the arts, that is fantastic. A lot of our districts do have someone in a role similar to that or someone who that's part of their job responsibilities. That's also where the county offices are here to support all of the principals across our state as well. So every single county, all 58 of them have someone in a role like mine that um, helps support everyone in making these decisions. And if your district has a strategic arts education plan, that is a point that can really be valuable because that will provide coherence to making those decisions because the decisions should be made to best meet the needs of the students in a particular school in the community. And if it connects to district goals and vision and mission types of things, work that has already been done, that is also really powerful for all of the students. Mm-hmm. So, Pauline, you have your finger on the pulse of arts education across the state across our 58 counties. Are we ready for this? We are ready. We are <laughs> beyond excited. We, um, the people at the different county offices talk very regularly. We were in Sacramento recently and continue to have conversations about this. We are working to support all of our districts because they are also very unique, just as all of the students in our state are very unique. And so we are working together to figure out what's working well, what questions are coming up, what problems we can help solve together and continuing to learn because this is going to be a learning process that'll be ongoing for a long time, but it's definitely an amazing opportunity. So whether within the district context or the county context or the state context, does this bode well for opportunities for synergies between segments of education, between different school districts, between counties? Absolutely. And there's a great interest, for example, in supporting our English learners across the state. And so I was talking with a colleague yesterday about how we can leverage work that's being done to support English learners and include the arts there and figure out how to do that in a really meaningful way so that we can support students who are learning English as another language. So that's one mm-hmm. example of many. And I'll, and I'll mention that uh, Pauline and I have also joined a, um, a group that's meeting, uh, that uh, they're in the creative youth development space, mm-hmm. um, which has not exactly been um, arts education. They tend to be uh, more after-school programming and so forth. Mm-hmm. But um, they have been engaged by uh, this Prop 28 thing and, and wanting to learn from us. And so then there, there's been a lot of synergy there because I think we're seeing that there's going to be more crossover um, of maybe some of their organizations providing um, some of those services uh, that, that come out of that 20% discretionary. Mm-hmm. So in as much as this is an access issue, an access to arts education, it also seems to be very much an issue of equity. Oh, for sure. Yes. Um, 
we we have the data that um, that has shown that um, the students who I think Pauline and I would both say maybe need arts education the most, the ones that could be most affected um, because they've been in uh, a situation where they don't have as many services or, or maybe they have, um, they're, they're a student that has been scoring lower on reading and math. So the system in, in, in its tradition has been giving them more reading and math. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we come from a perspective that um, if you are engaging students in the arts, they're going to, uh, in a more authentic way, uh, be open into a world where they uh, increase their interest and ability in literacy um, because of the arts uh, providing that as an open door. So it's very much a holistic and cross-curricular approach in as much as it is an arts for arts sake approach. Yes, they're both exceptionally important. And we know so many students that experience a connection and a sense of belonging in an arts class where maybe they're not as successful in another content area. But when they experience that success and they feel seen and heard and make connections um, when they're in an arts class, that tends to lead to more engagement. They come to school more regularly. We have a lot of data that shows these things. And so the more we increase access to arts education, especially for those students, mm-hmm. um, the better off we think education is going to be for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and the arts have really always been ubiquitous and pervasive across education. I mean, if you want to know how people lived, you turn to their arts, you look at their music, you look at their art and really get a, a good sense of who they were. So this is really, um, you know, putting support behind that idea, a more cross-curricular and and more holistic approach. Um, Now, we talk about arts classes. So we're talking about in-class. We're talking a lot about teachers. What about things like before school, after school, expanded learning? How does Prop 28 impact those types of programs? So Prop 28 is primarily directed at, at during the school day. Um, because the arts um, are an academic subject. Um, uh, they're, they're part of the education code as being an academic subject. They're part of uh, federal statute as being an academic subject. So Prop 28 primarily addresses that. We also know that we can um, activate um, students with um, additional uh, activities and services. Um, but, but that's actually a strength that California has, is that we have a lot of after-school, before-school funding available, thanks to Governor uh, Schwarzenegger many mm-hmm. years ago. And a lot of those, that's actually, frankly, how a lot of students have been getting their arts is after-school in those programs. So um, we, can, we can build on those, but Prop 28 is, is mostly directed at during the school day. Pauline? I was going to say, and that will change what they, the students who are in those before and after school programs receive, because if they're receiving more of that arts education during the school day, then if they're before and after school, what they're learning there can be extended in a much more meaningful way, because they'll have more of the basics that a lot of our after school programs have been trying to provide, knowing that not all students have access to arts education during the school day. So they look at the standards in the arts. Mm-hmm. They have been trying to bridge those gaps. So now that they can be free of that, what they can offer could just grow and be more, even more amazing for students. And this begs another question about funding. So let's say I'm in a school that where the arts are pretty well funded, whether it's through grants or through, you know, through other uh, influx of funds. Will my school receive less because of it? Absolutely not. No, uh, it's it's really based upon the formula that, that Pauline discussed earlier. Schools are going to get that. So schools that have a lot already, 
uh, are going to have more, and they're going to be able to, to continue to build and support the programs that they have, add on to, because um, there is a no supplement mm-hmm. uh, rule, so you can't uh, take that money and go, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to have this teacher paid for by this money now. No, mm-hmm. that, it, it's always an add-on. has to be supplemental. But um, uh, for the schools that haven't had it, they're going to be able to get something started, which is, uh, I think, what excites us maybe the most. So it's really meeting schools where they are in building. Exactly. From that point. Yeah. One of the, the questions, I think, um, how are we going to know how impactful these, this funding is? So we're talking about a, a major, t- millions of dollars, almost a billion into the state. Are schools responsible for monitoring impacts, uh, looking at assessments based on the funding, or is it just sort of a no-strings-attached sort of resource? Well, right now, each school site principal will need to write a plan on how they intend to spend the money and submit that plan. And then at the end of every school year, they will need to write a report showing how they spent the money, and it will need to be posted on a district website each year. So that is what we know right now. And Mm -hmm. if you look at research that already exists around arts education, there are a lot of things we expect to see eventually happening as far as increasing, if you have absenteeism, Mm -hmm. things like that, like looking at what can happen. And there are other groups looking at connecting it to other research and making that available to principals so they can collect some of that information themselves. And there are likely districts that are already working on how they're going to um, collect that data each year, but there's not a statewide effort at this moment. So there's not a universal assessment template for this, is that? So um, it's interesting uh, that you talk about this because, um, you know, the state obviously does have uh, assessments uh, for um, students for um, various subjects. And it's been my understanding that that the state built uh, a place that there's there's like an empty box Mm. uh, ready for the arts, um, but it has not yet been built. And frankly, it's, you know, it's, it's been a, um, a, I've been in arts education for over 30 years, and it's been a, a lively discussion through my career about how should we be assessing students in the arts, uh, or should we? Mm-hmm. Th- that, that question has been asked. So um, my, my take has been, well, if, if we're going to be called an academic subject, there should be an assessment, and it should be tracked, and we should be able to tell what students are doing. But probably not through filling in a bubble on a, on a, on a score sheet, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can do this in a way that it makes sense, it's authentic, and that we can see um, the, the student achievement so we can work to improve and we can make sure that we're deploying the resources uh, strategically and appropriately to make sure that we're giving the most impact. So basically, um, we're talking about a, a fiscal audit to begin with. And Russ, you talk about um, and, an empty box that's, that's waiting for something to go in. Is there anything that administrators or practitioners should know about how to look at, you know, uh, positive impacts or impacts at all as, as we move forward with this type of programming? It's a great question. You know, in our district in San Diego Unified, uh, we we do collect data on, on we're looking at the absenteeism, mm-hmm. right? We, um, I'd like to. I'd like to look more. We have a um, uh, a survey in in this in the state called the the California Healthy Kids Survey. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see kind of before and after shots of that. Um, I certainly want to see before and after shots of enrollment. In fact, this 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 school year that we're just wrapping up right now is extremely important that we take a snapshot. 
where, where are we right now and what does it look like when, when Prop 28 is implemented? Because there's just, I think, impact data just around numbers. Uh, then we can start looking at how does this translate into to other student achievement in other content areas in the arts and mm-hmm. outside of the arts. How is it affecting the whole child? Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a very different set of metrics than things that we look at before. Now, let me ask you this. I'm a parent and I have a great interest in, uh, you know, all of these monies being spent on the arts and how it impacts my kids. Is there a role for me as a parent in Prop 20? Absolutely. And as a parent myself, I plan on making sure I know what is happening at my child's school and what their plans are for implementing the funds that are coming for Prop 28, because I know what is happening right now at my youngest child's school, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. So there's nothing wrong. People do, parents do it very regularly mm-hmm. with asking questions, making mm-hmm. sure that principals are aware of what's happening, finding out what's going on, talking to the, be a member of the PTA or foundation or school site council. There are a lot of ways for parents to be involved, but simply asking questions, sending an email, making a phone call, those are all really important ways to at least get the conversation started. So it's, in, in other words, it's, it's very important that um, we sing from the same hymnal, although in uh, perhaps different voices and, and, and tones. Definitely. And share. If you have an idea of what would benefit your student, let the administration know about that because that's one of the ways I think it's really important that school administrators, as they're trying to figure out what to do with this funding, they may, as you mentioned, already have a really good sense of their community and their students and what would best meet their needs. Because if you're adding things on, if you just add more of what you already have, if your arts mm-hmm. program is really full, um, I think we're doing a disservice to students. So talking to the students, talking to the community, finding out what they may like to see, what would be culturally relevant to them, Mm -hmm. what would be engaging for students. Talk to the students that aren't coming to school. Talk to the students that are in the office a lot with discipline issues. See what they would like to see as far as arts education and then use that information. Let me give you an example of that. So we have a a high school in our district that um, decided to to put a um, a ceramics uh, course on the the choices for students, which they never had before, but they were curious. Hmm, what would this be popular? Turns out, there's over 200 students that indicated an interest. Wow! And I'll tell you what, what what I what I loved about that is that 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 number of that many students motivated so many people across the district to make sure. Okay, we're going to buy the kilns. Um, the facilities department is going to make sure that there's electricity and, and the proper outdoor fencing because that's where we're going to put the, the kiln. And the, the school is going to make sure that they're using their Prop 28 funds to, to get a teacher to make sure that that course can be supported. So it's this amazing new thing that happened, and it was student voice that made it happen. So it's very much a consultative and iterative process that, that you would anticipate growing across the, the, the funding cycles. For sure, yeah. Now, if you project into the future, and in our next episodes, we're going to talk about things you know, like how do schools implement Prop 28 and, and uh, some other things. But I'm wondering, as you project into the future, you look five, ten years into the future. Russ, we'll start with you. What is the legacy of Proposition 28? I mean, for years and years, for over four decades, we have had no real money coming in to arts education. Now... It is something that's sustainable, 
uh, and, and likely to have a big impact. So what do you see as you look into the future? Wow, so many things. Um, so first of all, um, an opportunity to provide that access uh, to arts education, especially among elementary students. Because I think up and down the state, um, so many of our schools have not had access to a dedicated arts teacher on their site. We've had heroic elementary teachers out there teaching what they can based on their own knowledge and the resources that they have and and, and taking their kids out to an assembly or a concert or, or, or what have you to try to give those experiences. But we're going to actually be able to do a much better job of teaching the arts in elementary school, which then sets up an opportunity for students to make decisions about what electives they have in their secondary experience to a degree we haven't seen in over 40 years. And what I hope is one of the legacies is something that Pauline alluded to earlier, is that we are making choices around what those arts classes look like that are reflective of what students want and that are relevant to their own cultural experiences. And it would seem to me that there is a role for post-secondary institutions as we are going to have any number of students who have been better steeped in the arts and have a greater passion for the arts our arts departments here, our visual arts, our performing arts, um, need to be ready for that. Our dance departments, uh, you know, our drama departments as well. Pauline, for you, what is the legacy of Proposition 28? Very similar to what Russ was saying. I want all students to have a well-rounded education that includes every single one of the arts disciplines because they deserve that. And it shouldn't matter whether you're living in this area of a particular district or on the other side of whatever a freeway is or within these boundaries, or you're in someone's elementary classroom and they value the arts and have found a way to make time and still make sure they're meeting the other requirements they have as a teacher. Those things shouldn't matter. Every single student deserves to have an education that prepares them for the future as a member of society, for a job, and for their humanity. They deserve to have things that bring them joy and help them be um, a wonderful human being. And to deny students an arts education is not okay. And what do you see for teachers, teachers who may have a passion for the arts but pursued something else for a guaranteed job, and now these opportunities are opening up? Do you see the, the, the teacher force changing at all, the classified force changing at all? Yeah, so I have um, been contacted by several teachers within our own district who are uh, maybe teaching fourth grade, uh, but their passion and maybe their degree even uh, was mm-hmm. in uh, the arts of some sort. And, uh, but maybe they've been a fourth grade teacher because they couldn't find employment in the arts as a teacher. So there's opportunities for folks that are already in our system that... Um, Uh, Very exciting. And several other districts have already done very similar things that have at least one arts teacher at every elementary school ready to go for next year through this very same pathway. So it is a viable career option for anyone who's an adult or a student right now and thinking about how much they love dance. Well, guess what? Now's your time. (laughs) It's It's going to continue. So we've talked about populations of teachers and classified staff parents statewide in, in the broader context. But let's, let's bring it down a little bit to your personal context. So for each of you, and Pauline will begin with you, how have the arts impacted you professionally and personally? Well, personally, 
I had several undiagnosed, I have a lot of neurodiversity and that was not diagnosed until very recently. And so I did not feel that I fit in at school or belonged. I just always felt I was very different from everybody else. And that was kind of unnerving Mm -hmm. as a child to not even understand what is happening. And then when I started music class, playing an instrument when I was nine years old, I found something that I excelled at above everyone else in my Mm -hmm. class and in my entire school. And And that instrument being? Flute is what I started playing. And then by the time I got into seventh and eighth grade, I knew I wanted to be a music teacher because of the joy it brought me and the belonging that I felt that I can identify now as an adult. And I was able to go and sit and play for hours and hours and hours at a time. And it helped me focus and it helped me deal with emotions and things that were going on. And I started to see that happen for other people, too, through the arts. And as a music teacher, when I started my career, I would see how literally students' lives would be saved sometimes through that. Or they Mm -hmm. would come to school for the arts. And I've taught in a variety. I've taught in urban settings and rural settings and so many different places. And I've watched the impact it's had on students' lives. And so to me, to know that there are kids that don't have that opportunity and that that's why I feel so strongly about that. So the art save lives is more than just an aphorism. It's it's a real case. Absolutely. Real yes, case. I know. Physically, it has saved people and their emotional and mental health. We talk about that all the time, right? We talk about mental health and the arts are a really um, valuable way to help with that. Mm-hmm. Russ, what about you? Well, my family uh, would tell you that um, I'm, I'm the youngest, mm-hmm. and so um, I was always the entertainer. I was um, always uh, putting on the show or always grabbing attention mm-hmm. uh, from the elders that were always around me. And um, it was just a natural that uh, I was going to be in <laughs> the center of attention. And here you have me on the side here. No, you know, I, <laughs> we, we can switch. <laughs> So um, it was uh, it was it was preordained that I was going to find my way into the arts, into the performing arts in particular, and uh, music became uh, that thing for me. But I've also been involved with um, theater and and so forth. And um, I literally cannot imagine uh, what would have happened if I didn't have that class during the school day, mm-hmm. uh, especially in middle and high school. It was what brought me to school. Um, I put up with all the academics because I knew that I needed to do that to get to the music. And so um, when Pauline talks about it saving lives, I don't know if it necessarily saved my life, but uh, my life, but I've certainly seen for others where it absolutely has. Um, And then in my own um, development as a person, to find uh, that I'm a member of the LGBT community, I'm, I'm, I'm gay, and then to bring music back uh, to the com- my community. And, and when I say that, mm-hmm. um, I started with some other uh, music teachers, a Pride Youth Marching Band that we, we do in the summer in San Diego, and I see the joy uh, that it brings the students that come to that um, opportunity and the connections that they make and um, the real um, validation they have for themselves and the pride that they feel when they march down the street. And I'm also uh, on the, the board for Diversionary Theater, the, the third oldest LGBT theater in the country is here in San Diego. And so the arts then have been so wrapped up in uh, my personal life and my, my, own, my own identity that um, 
I can't imagine them not having been a part of my life when I was in school. They're just wrapped up in that. And then it became my career as well. So um, I don't think that Pauline and I are, are um, actually that unique. Um, we have unique positions, I'll say that. <laughs> but um, uh, we are not unique as far as our experiences in school. And um, for the number of students that haven't had the opportunities that we have had uh, that are in school right now, um, I just can't wait for this money to arrive. So for you both, the arts really have been more of a calling than a career. And I think that if the arts education provided by Prop 28 even yields a fraction of the impact that it has had on you, it is money very well spent. So thank you, Russell and Pauline. Uh, Now, I've been immersed in this work for a good two decades and have learned so much from you in the course of our time together. From all of us at the Education Channel and UCTV, thank you for joining us for this episode of Proposition 28, Painting the Future. I hope that you will join us next time for a closer look at the finer points of implementing this initiative in schools and local education agencies. Until then, I have been your host, Morgan Appel.